All right. All right. Welcome to Trioga Radio. I'm Jacob Gordon. And I'm Brian Merchant. We'll be talking today about pollution that actually cools off the planet, although don't get too excited about that. Government animal control practices that involve cyanide-loaded spring traps and sewage sensors in Brooklyn waterways. Sound fun? Sounds fun to me. All right. First, some quick ones. The 2016 Prius, which will be the fourth generation of the world's most popular hybrid, may be manufactured in the United States. Toyota currently builds a small number of its Camry hybrids with imported Japanese parts, but if this goes through, the fourth generation Prius will be built in Kentucky with U.S.-made American hybrid parts. Uh So you can feel even better about your uh, Pius. I mean Prius. Oh, Low carbon and American made. American made. Last week we talked about Elon Musk, the PayPal co-founder whose name is on a list of billionaires who have promised to give their fortunes to charity. This week he comes up again. He is the co-founder of Tesla Motors, also SpaceX, and also SolarCity. SolarCity is the U.S.'s leading residential solar installer And the company looks like it's about to go public, which is actually bucking the trend in the renewable energy market. A couple uh, notable ones recently having pulled out their filings, BrightSource Energy, a developer of solar thermal power plants, and Enerchem, a cellulosic ethanol producer, both withdrew their registrations to go public this month. Yeah, the market's been a little bit ugly for solar, but uh, maybe this is some good news on the way. Yeah, also Solar City news. They have so Elon Musk being instrumental in both Solar City and Tesla. It's only logical that there would be some overlap between the two. Now, Solar City is selling battery packs for your home based on the same technology that Tesla is using in its cars. So the two companies are working together to offer these lithium-ion packs. They'll sit either in your garage or outdoors next to your house, and they will let customers take advantage of cheaper electricity during off-peak hours, storing it for use later, and to store electricity generated by their rooftop solar arrays. And presumably, you'd be able to charge up your battery from your solar panels during the daytime in your battery in your garage, and then when you get home, charge your Tesla. There you go. You a have full, full closed loop. It's a, it's a full cycle. Comes full circle there. And you've got the Tesla Roadster, but you don't have a garage yet, right. Ryan. So <laughs> I have this whole that fleet rainbow. of high end electric cars. I've got the Fisker too. That's it's a shame. I just gotta <laughs> have to have some room to put them. I saw a Fisker Karma in Brooklyn driving down Flatbush Ave a couple weeks ago. I, th- I almost lost my mind. I think I uh, read somewhere that Justin Bieber got a Fisker no way. for his birthday. I think he did. <laughs> this car had some pretty deeply tinted windows, so it was either Jay-Z or, or the Bieber. Yeah. I don't know if Jay-Z has a Fisker karma. I got to I, I test drove uh, the Tesla dropped off one of the roadsters a, a couple years ago and I got to cruise around Brooklyn and that uh Felt a little bit like a badass driving that. I bet you also looked like a badass. I don't know about that. I probably looked like a child leaning out of the window, you know, like <laughs> like a like a kid in his dad's clothes. I felt like super nice car. I didn't know what to do with myself, but it was good fun. That thing's fast. Speaking of Justin Bieber, that's a stretch for a segue. In B News, I'll take it. In Cape May, New Jersey, a woman named Victoria Clayton and her boyfriend noticed more than the usual number of honeybees 
around their backyard, and they traced the bees back to the house's attic, where they found a thirty thousand bee colony in a hive that was multiple feet across. In the attic. In the attic. What? But good tree huggers they, that they are, rather than call an exterminator, they called a bee rescuer named Gary Shemp, who was an exterminator turned bee shepherd. And using a special vacuum device, Shemp sucked the bees out of the attic and transferred them to his apiary on Route 47. He suffered only two stings in the process. What a pro. What a pro. So all this colony collapse disorder, I guess it's it's not even, it's, there's not any collapse. They're just all going to Maine in the attics. They're oh. in your attic. People's, people's attics, yeah. Jersey. No, this oh, is Jersey. New Jersey, yeah. Oh, They're going even to closer Jersey. to home. Yeah. yeah. Who wouldn't, you know. Most people are going back to Jersey to live in their parents' attic anyway, so... Bees are doing the same thing. Yeah. So this whole bee colony collapse is just part of the recession. They're just... They can't find work and they're going home, right? <laughs> going home. <laughs> Moving in with the folks. We solved it. This is what we do on Triaga Radio. We solve the world's problem. Making moves. All right. Talk to us about turning brownfields into renewable energy wonderlands. Yeah, this is a cool story. Uh, and it's one of those rare sort of indisputably good ideas. And it's turning unused, polluted, or contaminated land sites into renewable energy production sources. So it's a collaborative project from the Department of Energy and the EPA. And what they're doing is they're seeking to streamline the process uh, that lets cities, individuals, and companies do exactly that. So they identify... Uh, these contaminated sites, uh, brownfields or Superfund sites, or even smaller sites that have just been contaminated or unfit for uh, development or other uh, uh, in other natures. Uh, but what they're doing is they're putting together this tool that lets developers see exactly how renewable energy sources could be outfitted. So if you have, you know, a big vacant lot that was contaminated with uh, some toxic chemical, you know, decades ago, and nobody's built on it for, for, you know, forever, you have a real opportunity to say, okay, well, we could put solar arrays there because, you know, people don't have to work there full time. You, you set up a solar array, you get, you know, clean energy, you're using bad land, and it's a, it's a win-win situation. You're repurposing this land uh, for probably the best, the best means possible. Uh, and the project is called the Repowering America's Land Act, according to the EPA. And it, the EPA says that the initiative identifies the renewable energy potential of these sites and provides other useful resources for communities, developers, industry, state and local governments, or anyone interested in reusing these sites for renewable energy development. Beautiful. I love it. And of course, a lot of these brownfield sites or contaminated sites are contaminated with petroleum. A lot of... Uh, Early coal, oil, That's right. and coal gas tanks were underground. Then they ruptured and they leaked. They and leached then, this, yeah, old crude and old, and, and that stuff's toxic if it, if it stays in the ground. And, and you know, developers won't touch this stuff. Mm-hmm. You're not going to build a storefront on a you know on these contaminated sites. You're not going to want your kids to move in, so you're not going to build a house there. Uh, but wh- why not? Why not? set up some solar panels. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. And if they clean up the site and they decide to build on it, these things aren't terribly difficult to move either. No, that's right. Yeah. New research from the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences is looking at the effect that particulate emission, tiny particles in the atmosphere, are having on the temperature of the United States. And there's an interesting twist here. Particulate pollution, this is mostly sulfur dioxide that comes from 
coal-fired power plants has created a cooling effect in the second half of the 20th century over the eastern half of the United States that is quite dramatic and is actually starting to clear up, which is worrisome. So they call this a warming hole, which to me is sort of a confusing term, but it's a warming hole in that it's a hole in the warming, meaning that it's cooler. Does that make sense? So this is a cold patch where the effects of global warming were temporarily obscured because less of that solar radiation is actually hitting the Earth. Right, those particulate uh, in the atmosphere, they reflect light back. They're, they're dark, yeah. Exactly. So they're not good. They cause acid rain. They cause respiratory disease. But they do reflect the sunlight out. In fact, they even can create more regular clouds. They can work like little seeds. They call them nucleation sites for water droplets. So regular, normal vapor-based clouds can actually form around the sulfur dioxide particles. Yeah, we saw this kind of phenomenon happen with the eruption of Mount Pinatubo. You remember it was a gigantic uh, volcanic eruption uh, uh, years ago now. But after that eruption, there was a distinct uh, cooling trend. And that was because so much particulate matter was blasted into the atmosphere that less sunlight essentially was getting in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you're into the whole climate engineering school of thought, there are all sorts of theories to put stuff up into the atmosphere or who knows, set off volcanic eruptions to shade the earth from man, the sun. Man, that stuff scares me, man. That geoengineering stuff. They, they have all these ideas. They can seed clouds, create more artificial you know, clouds with you know, these particulates in them, or they have all these different ideas. They kind of like tampering with the whole equilibrium. You're not a fan? Well, it's no. a little... It's scary stuff. I, I mean... I, I, we should examine all the other options first. I think that's a, the call of last resort. Yeah. The overall effect of this is, is pretty dramatic. So while the global mean temperatures have gone up around 0.08 degrees centigrade over the course of the 20th century, the eastern U.S., as a result of this, they say, has gone down temperature-wise as much as one degree Celsius between 1930 and 1990. At this point, they say that most of that warming catch-up has already occurred, but they're very concerned about China, which is just now starting to look at cleaning up their air. And when they do, the climate impact over there may be even worse. And a lot of talk about clouds. We'll probably hear more about this if you look in the New York Times this week. There is an article about how cloud issues are becoming the last bastion of the climate change deniers and the article focuses on the work of Richard Lindzen, who is a reputable veteran climate scientist who thinks that the changes in cloud cover around the planet will compensate sufficiently for the increased carbon dioxide and the increased greenhouse effect. And he's become sort of the darling baby boy of the Heartland Institute and others who are looking for credible seeming scientists who will say, don't worry. Everything's fine. Yeah, he's the he's a holdout. He's one of the most famous holdouts. Uh, and at this point, I th it's got to be said, I think, that his work is... I mean, these studies have been debunked. His studies, rather, that suggest this. That I mean, his whole thing is exactly like you said, is that the sensitivity of our atmosphere to the concentration of all these greenhouse gases that we're spewing out there from coal plants and cars and all that kind of stuff. He says that in general, it, the, the climate's not going to be so sensitive to that, that it's not going to really matter 
we can pump a lot more carbon up there and nothing's really going to change. But but that work has been really sort of uh, taken to task by the consensus of other scientists. The vast majority of other scientists say, well, no, that's not true. We can see we can see the measurable impacts of that concentration growing. It correlates to a rise in temperatures. Mm-hmm. And and they've generally debunked his line of thought. But he's holding firm uh, and he hasn't he hasn't budged in his views. And you see him show up a lot at congressional hearings when, you know, the the oil industry interests and the Republican guys that kind of want a case against uh, climate action uh, want to have a smart sounding guy. They, they call him a lot. So, you know, what? I hope it's true. Be nice, right? <laughs> yeah, it would be nice. Saved by clouds. Saved by clouds. Don't count on it, though. Don't count on it. All right, well, news out of uh, the EPA arena. You guys might have heard about this, but a a senior official has resigned after some incendiary remarks he made have been aired and launched into uh, the national discourse here, uh, primarily at the behest of EPA opponents and the GOP. So Al Armendariz... In 2010, he was uh, giving a, a, a small speech to some fellow officials, and, and he said he said this. I was in a meeting once, and I gave an analogy to my staff about my philosophy of enforcement, and I think it was probably a little crude and maybe not appropriate for the meeting, but I'll go ahead and tell you what I said. It was kind of like how the Romans used to you know, conquer little villages in the Mediterranean. They'd go to a little Turkish town somewhere, and they'd find the first five guys they saw, and they'd crucify them. That, you know, that town was really easy to manage for the next few years. And so you make examples out of people who are, in this case, not complying with the law. You find people who are not complying with the law, you hit them as hard as you can. You make examples out of them, and there's a deterrent there. So basically what he's saying is, and it's an unfortunate metaphor to be sure, uh, especially considering it was made by a leading member of an agency that an entire political party, uh, one that's galvanized by evangelical Christians, no less, hotly derides. These guys hate the EPA. Uh, the GOP has been after the EPA. They've, they've made it into the boogeyman of, of Obama's creeping socialist. You know, the EPA is out to, you know, make all these regulations, blah, blah, blah. So they've been hungry for a... Uh, piece of evidence like this. But what, what he was saying, uh, and Armandirez oversees uh, Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma, this region of the nation in uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. So what he's saying is when you go in, you find a major polluter and you make you make them. It's what Harvey Keitel says to do in Reservoir Dogs is you walk in and you break the first guy's nose you see with the butt of your gun and then everybody else shuts up and pays attention. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Which well, is, this And this metaphor is probably used throughout Washington backroom politics all the time and far worse, but crude. It's crude. And you never... Why would you make a crucifixion re- uh, reference, uh, you know, especially knowing that, the, that your political opponents are, you know, listening in for this kind of thing. They already hate what you're doing. And they're already, you know, uh, they're already looking for a reason to to demonize you. And you're kind of serving it up on a platter. But what he's saying, I think, and this is the interesting part. What he's saying is that we go in and we make the biggest polluter on the block comply with regulations. You know, like they're polluting too much. We say, okay, well, you have to follow the rules. And maybe they do it 
in a visible and aggressive way saying, okay, we're not going to take no for an answer. We're yeah. going to make you play by the rules. They give them a bit of a smackdown. They give them a bit of a smackdown. They, they make sure that the industry circles know what's going on. And then maybe other major polluters in town take notice and say, okay, well, we better start complying with pollution rules. Maybe we should stop dumping toxic waste in the stream out back, you know? Maybe we should clean up our act. So that's what he's saying. But this p- terrible metaphor. I mean, what was this guy thinking? I don't I don't know. I hear that he's done a great job. The Sierra Club released a press release that said, you know, like, you've been doing great work ever since. And, uh, but he's out, right? He oh, he just, is, but he's resigned. He tapped out. So, yeah, yeah, he tapped out. He's gone. Uh, and the administration, the Obama administration, has been really distancing themselves from him. So the takeaway from this is that you're going to see a lot more uh, bad-mouthing the EPA going forward. This has kind of invigorated that movement to kind of attack the EPA. Jumping from one U.S. agency to another, I'm going to do a story about wildlife services. This is sort of – this is not typically the kind of story – We do because it mostly references a very interesting investigative piece that the Sacramento Bee ran recently. Stephen Messenger covered it for us on on Treehugger. Um, The article talks about wildlife services and its network of programs to control species like coyotes and beavers and other animals that are considered to be pests or threats in many parts of the country. The author is a journalist named Tom Knudsen. And it's a very in-depth three-part series that really seems to be blowing the lid off something that's been going on largely unnoticed for a long time, several decades. He paints a picture of a dysfunctional, shady, unscientific network of agencies that are accruing a shocking list of collateral damages along the way. Wildlife Services is a branch of the Department of Agriculture. They do all sorts of things. Um, In this article, Knudsen writes that With steel traps, wire snares, and poison, agency employees have accidentally killed more than 50,000 animals since 2000 that were not problems, including federally protected golden and bald eagles, more than 1,100 dogs, including family pets, and several species considered rare or imperiled by wildlife biologists, more than 150 different individual species in total. A growing body of science has found that the agency's war against predators, ways to protect livestock and big game, is altering ecosystems in ways that diminish biodiversity, degrade habitat, and invite disease. And as a dog lover, this is particularly heart-wrenching. On average, eight dogs a month have been killed by mistake by wildlife services since 2000. And that's just what's on record. Part of what the journalist uncovers in this investigation is that there's a huge amount of activity, collateral damage that goes completely unrecorded, and that there's a culture of brushing this stuff under the rug, so to speak. Many of these traps are these sorts that clamp onto animals' legs, also snap around their bodies, but a common one is called the M44, which is sunk into the ground and then shoots a sodium cyanide cartridge up into the open mouth of an animal when it's triggered. And these have killed all sorts of non-target animals, and have even gone off on um, people. The, the story starts out with this first-person account of a U.S. Department of Agriculture employee who's checking traps in Nevada and finds a golden eagle caught in one of them. 
And this is the largest bird of prey in America. They're enormous, and they're protected by federal law. His supervisor asks him if anybody saw it. He calls it in. He says, I don't think so. And the guy says, we'll just bury it. And he does, but then they find it. So it's never reported. Knudsen makes case after case in the article to suggest that there are many, many unreported cases of non-target animals getting killed, as well as pets by wildlife services. So it's a three-part series. Go on a tree hugger and see the summary of it, but then go over to the Sacramento Bee and read the story. It's really quite fascinating. It's tough stuff. You know, well, you listeners already know that uh, we human folk have had, had, had such a massive footprint on, you know, on ecosystems and habitats worldwide. And these these services, these wildlife services often, you know, are trying to figure out the best way to bring back some species that we've we've messed with and 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 try to control other populations. And it's a it's a it's a difficult thing. And this sounds heartbreaking. Uh, and I'm sh- and it is. And we've got to figure out more and better ways to keep tabs on this kind of thing. But it's it's tough. I mean, just I, I'd recommend when you're reading this in the back of your mind, just 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 keep in mind how how immense our our impact has been and how how difficult it is to try to to try to maintain some sort of equilibrium, you know, in nature with 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 the encroaching forces of of, of our uh, population here. Yeah. Tough. One of the stories we cover this week on Treehugger is about Microsoft using sewer gas to power its cloud servers. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how Apple is going to be using fuel cells to run its iCloud. Microsoft has been talking for some time about placing data centers on top of places where they can generate biogas. From sewers. From sewers or from wastewater treatment plants. You've got a story on sewage. Other things we can do with uh, sewage right here in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's right. I was recently out on a tour with IOBI, which is this great uh, environmental startup. It's called In Our Backyards. Clever little play on NIMBY, not in my backyards. Anyways, what they do is they're like Kickstarter for local environmental projects. And they, you know, allow you to set up a profile, get some funding rolling in, and do do a local project. And through them, this great entrepreneurial design student from Parsons named Leif Persefield, and he has a hell of an idea about how to get uh, this and the New York City uh, sewer system to stop dumping billions, literally billions of gallons of raw sewage into the New York Harbor every year. So first of all, that might be news to you. If you live in New York City, this might be the first time that you're hearing that every year about 27 billion gallons of raw sewage spew forth into the New York City Harbor Every year. And raw sewage, this is pee-pee and poo-poo from people's homes. That is the scientific term for it. That is Just how it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. It's it's sewage uh, from the, the, the city overflow system. So what happens is anytime that there's excess rain or flooding or overuse in the system, what they have to do in order to keep the thing running is they have to discharge the overflow. Dump? Really? They just open the floodgates and out it goes into the harbor. Yikes. Which is why swim this is why you your, don't swim you don't when it rains. Swim in the, especially not in the New York City Harbor Oof. or in the East River. But anyways, in order to prevent this from happening, 
Persifield has designed uh, a project he calls Don't Flush Me. And it's really kind of elegant and simple what he does is he's dropping these little DIY sensors that he's made uh, into various sewer systems that have a, have a built-in sensor that sends signals to uh, cell phones systems when they get to a certain level. So, And this happens, of course, when it rains, when it floods. So if it gets to a certain level where it's looking like it's going to reach uh, you know, overflow capacity, it'll send the signal to a cell phone, uh, and that cell phone will either, you know, it, you can, it'll send a text blast, it'll send a message to a system if you're hardwired in. So anyone participating can get these messages, and then what do you do? You don't flush your toilet. So you, you conserve water. You don't take a 30-minute shower. You, you get the signal. And in his ideal sort of conception, there will be an actual sort of LED light that you plug into the wall and in your bathroom. And when you go into the bathroom, you can see if the light turns a certain color. I think he was thinking red. If it turns red, then you know not to waste a lot of water because the sewer systems are reaching a point of overflow. So you can then conserve water. Uh, and you can you can avoid uh, uh, avoid the waste. And if enough people do this, this could really help prevent. I mean, there's eight million people living in New York, and we use a hell of a lot of water every time we shower, flush, do the dishes, all these kind of things. So if we have a heads up about when uh, it's best not to do it, it could really be useful. And Percifield, he's a cool guy. Check out his project. It's at uh, it's at Don't Flush Me. I uh, just Google that. But but he you know he's he's got all sorts of other things too where he's tracking the amount of water how much you use when you flush a day. So how many times do you flush per day or how much mm-hmm. you know do you so he, there's all these things you can you can find out about your home water usage. So clever. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I love the intersection of remote sensors and hacker culture and reducing your impact all coming together that's brilliant i love it too the guy's just a, he's a design student he's not even uh, an engineer or an environmentalist he hmm. just thought this was a cool idea hmm. also this week on tree hugger we've got solar cells that mimic plant leaves more on microsoft's plans to power the cloud on sewer gas and how to build a solar powered lawnmower and of course plenty plenty more next week will indeed be our last show. And I think I'm going to do sort of a back in time montage of some of the best moments from the interviews. So we'll probably have some Isabella Rossellini on there and some Margaret Atwood and some Bill McDonough and Bill McKibben. And I don't know, I'll go back through and dredge up some of my best moments Cool. Who knows? Maybe I'll drop by to say adios. As yeah, well. I was I was gonna say that unless you unless we get you on there somewhere, this is your chance to say goodbye. Ooh. Well, I might I might start weeping, so I'll <laughs> hold off for now. We'll just we'll just cue the music. Thanks to everybody for listening. You can still reach us radio at treehugger.com and follow us on Twitter. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, guys. 